Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. About three weeks before Christmas, we started John chapter 1. And today we go to John chapter 2. All right, so we're moving right along here at a steady clip. Only three or four months to get here, and that's good. We want to look today at the first 11 verses of John chapter 2. Uh, as I said all along, some of these narratives will take it bigger clips than we do, say, in an epistle where we deal with them verse by verse. Uh, but this is an important one, and we may or may not get finished with it today because this is the first miracle that we have recorded by Jesus. I, I hope you remember that back in that first sermon, back before Christmas, we talked about that John gave the reason for which he is writing this gospel. There toward the end of the book, he said, I write these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. Everything he does, whether it's in the prologue, those first 18 verses, or whether it's in the part where he's calling his disciples and John, is ba John the Baptist has baptized him down by the river or in the river, whatever John is doing, John the gospel writer is doing, he is doing it with the purpose of showing us who Jesus is. Uh, he's doing it for the purpose of, in his day, those who were still seeped in Judaism to a great extent, that they might see that this is the promised Messiah. This is the one they've been looking for. But he's also doing it for people in our day who are so seeped in secularism and so seeped in naturalism that we think everything's just sort of, uh, just sort of happened through time and there's no real purpose to it. And John wants us to see that Jesus Christ came to the world, God incarnate, for a very specific purpose, and that is that we might believe in him, that we might know him, that we might have a right relationship with God through him. That's the purpose for which he wrote this book. And so he comes to chapter 2, and he tells us that this is going to be the first miracle that Jesus performs. It's kind of an unusual and likely miracle in some ways. You'd think, well, Jesus comes on the scene, wants to make a big splash. He'll go down into Jerusalem, get in the, in the city square, near the temple square, and he'll say, everybody, look, I want to show you what I can do, and boom, do it. But John shows us throughout his whole epistle in seven specific miracles that he is going to center on and that he's going to call signs. John rarely uses the word miracle. He uses the word signs. He's going to show us through these seven specific signs that Jesus doesn't choose the big venue. He doesn't rent a concert hall and, and, and blow everybody away, but rather he goes into very private, very intimate situations and, and very personalized situations in many cases, and he begins to unfold his glory for people to see. He's not trying to dazzle the people. He's not trying to show himself as primarily a miracle worker, but he's trying to say, this demonstrates who I am and why I came. And that's what he does in these first 11 verses in this first miracle. He goes to a wedding. Uh, he, he goes to a wedding where there's evidently a lot of people, but even in what he does, he doesn't do it to all the people. He does it basically in front of some servants and his parent, his mother and, and his, some brethren and his disciples that he's called thus far that are there with him. Why Cana, many people have asked, and that's a great question. It's interesting that in the previous chapter that we looked at last week, uh, when, when uh, Philip went to Nathaniel and said, we found the Messiah, we found the one that Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about, Jesus, the son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
Well, we'll find out toward the end of John's gospel that Cana is the town that Nathaniel came from. So, so we find out that, and we realize, they've, they've found Nazareth in archaeological digs and things. They, they still can't find Cana. They're still looking and wondering exactly where Cana is and was. It was, it was more insignificant in many ways than was Nazareth. But yet, yet Nathaniel came from there, and that might be a little bit of a clue why they went to this wedding in Cana. Maybe Nathaniel knew the people, and, and he said, hey, I've been invited to this wedding, and we're on our way. Let's go by together, and John, uh, Jesus and the disciples went with I don't know. Um, perhaps Mary and Jesus knew this family. They, they were aware of those who were getting married, so they went to the wedding. John doesn't go into a lot of detail about why they were there. He just says they were on their way. They, on the third day, they went to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Follow along as I read, starting verse 1. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, it's real easy to just kind of gloss over that and pass over that, but listen, this was a scandalous situation in Jesus' day in biblical times. The, the groom was responsible for the wine, for the refreshments, for the, for the party, if you will, that takes place around the wedding. And sometimes these weddings could go on for a week. Uh, they always started on Wednesday and went at least to the weekend, what we would call the weekend. Uh, if it was a virgin, if it was a widow, it started on Thursday. But there was always an extended time of wedding celebration and wedding parting and, and the wine was a central integral part of what took place there and it was the responsibility of the of the groom to provide that uh, some uh, uh, cultural commentators of that day have actually said that it was far more than just an embarrassment to the groom there were legal aspects to this People came from way off, and they came to these weddings, and, and there was a, a contractual agreement that they would be well served and well taken care of while they were there as far as the, the refreshments and the celebration goes, and that there was actually even a provision in some cases where a groom could be sued by those who came if the wine ran out. Sounds strange to us, I know, but... but uh, some say that was exactly what took place. So, so it's more than just an embarrassment. It's almost a scandal. And Mary goes to Jesus and says, Son, they don't have any wine. Jesus' response to her, to our ears, is somewhat strange. In verse, three, uh, in verse 4 he says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. What does that have to do with us? Literally in the Greek it says, what of me and you? In other words, what's the problem here? Now, we know or we assume that Mary, knowing who Jesus was, remember a lot of people say, well, did she know that he was the Messiah at this point? Did she know that he was God incarnate at this point? Of course she did. I mean, remember the angel story that, that the other gospels tell us about? Remember how the angel came and appeared to her and said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to bear the Messiah? You're going to be you're going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. Of course, Mary knew. That's why I, one of my favorite Christmas songs, and I love this song, it's beautiful, uh, is Mary, Did You Know? But when I hear it sung, I want to cry out and say, of course she knew. Certainly she knew. There's no mystery there. 
God had revealed it to her that she was the one who would carry the Messiah. Oh, well, I, we're not at Christmas. Let's get away from that. But anyway, she, he said, what, what does this to do with you and me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, we assume that he's saying, quit trying to push me into doing something prematurely that I'm not yet supposed to do. I'm here to do my Father's will, not to do your will. That's kind of the way we read it, and, and perhaps that's right. Some even look at it and said, why didn't he say, Mother, Mom, why my time has not come yet. Why are you doing this? But he says, Woman. And to our ears, in our cultural setting, it sounds like he's being rather rude, quite honestly. Being kind of, uh, you know, why, why, why call her woman when she's his mother? And, and yet, I, I think we're a little too harsh there if we think that. Because I think what he's just simply saying is, first of all, I think he is putting a little distance here. Uh, he, he's saying it's, it's not this human family relationship that matters in what I'm about to do, but it's that I be obedient and, and submissive to my father's will, not to my mother's will. So, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? What about, what is it to you? What is it to me? Then we go on. Verse 5, his mother, John brings that back. By the way, John never uses the name Mary for the mother of Jesus in all the New Testament, in all his book. He always just refers to Mary, uh, he refers to the mother of Jesus or his mother. So in verse 5, he says, His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, you do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. That's about 120 to 180 gallons, depending on what size they were. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have, freely, have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There's a lot of rich truth in this passage that if we're not careful, we may overlook. We may see it merely as just a miracle, and it is a miracle. I mean, I, I, I've never heard before of any time or place where you'd, you'd have big pots of 20 or 30-gallon uh, pots of water filled up to the very top, and all of a sudden that water becomes wine. But even more than that, understand this, these pots were, it says, pots that were set there for the Jewish custom of purification. These are the pots that when you came in from, uh, and going into the wedding, you went to and you washed your hands, you cleansed yourself in them, and they, they were not pure spring water. They, they didn't come from Zephyr Hills or whatever. They, these were pots that had been used for, for purification. It doesn't say anything about Jesus saying, now take the pots and go and pour out that dirty water and clean them out real good and fill it up with clean water. It just says where they are, fill them up, fill them to the top. And it says he filled them to the brim. And then Jesus doesn't go over and lay his hands on the pots and, 
and say, now I'm changing this water into wine. He doesn't go over there and say, hocus pocus. He doesn't go over there and do anything out of the ordinary. He just simply says, after the pots have been filled, to those servants that are there, now you, take, you dip out some water and take it to the head. Dip out of those water pots and take it to the head waiter. Head waiter had no idea what was going on. I, I'm not sure that the, the servants at that point had a, a very good idea about what was going on. It, it probably sounded very strange to them that Jesus would say, just dip out what's in there and take it to the head waiter and let him taste it. I, I imagine some of those servants probably were scratching their head a little bit and thinking, uh, we're going to at, at best lose our job taking him water out of these purification pots and giving it to him to, to drink and yet they do what he says I think there's a remarkable principle here for you and me I think Mary showed a lot of wisdom when she looked at those servants and just knew that when Jesus was ready to do something whatever whatever he said do they'd all they ought to obey him they ought to do what he says you know that's a principle you and I could do well to remember. When Jesus says something, we ought to do it. When Jesus speaks, if we're his children, if we're a part of his family, if we're his disciples, as Scripture talks about, when Jesus says something, we ought to do it. And, and he said much to you and me as his disciples, as those who are part of his family. He said much to us in the scripture. But many times we run over what he says that we ought to be about in this life and in our own personal ministry. We just kind of run over it and say, oh, well, that's probably for somebody else. No, I think Mary's advice to those servants is good advice to you and me. Whatever Jesus says, do it. Hear him. This is not just an itinerant preacher this is not just some moral teacher this is not just some miracle worker who's come to dazzle you and to show you what power he has this is the very son of God this is the very king of kings and lord of lords this is the one who has called you to himself and called you to be his disciple whatever he says you ought to do I don't care if it's a in the air of your ministry, I don't care if it's in the air of your personal life and personal purity. I don't care if it's in the area of, of sharing the gospel with those that he's told us to share the gospel with in his word. I, I don't know I don't know what it I, I don't really it really doesn't matter what it is. If Jesus says it, Mary says, if he tells you to do something, just be certain you do it. And so they did. They dipped out of the pots, the water pots, the dirty purification pots. And they took the water, they took the liquid that had been water to the head waiter and they said, here, taste this. And he did. And he was impressed. He didn't know where it came from. John's clear to show us that the head waiter didn't know where this came from. I've got a feeling if they'd said, here, taste this. It just came out of the purification pot. He would have said, are you out of your mind? That's dirty stuff. I'm not going to taste that. But he didn't know. So he took what they had drawn out of that pot, that 20 or 30-gallon pot, probably hewn out of stone, and he tasted it. And it, he was blown away by it. He, he couldn't believe what he was tasting. And he didn't go run into Jesus and say, Jesus, man, you have made some great wine out of water. He didn't do that, out of dirty water. But rather he called the bridegroom, and he said to the bridegroom, what are you, 
this is, the, this is the most phenomenal thing I've ever seen. Most of the time, when there's a wedding feast and wine is served to the guests, the, the, the bridegroom brings out the best wine first. And he passes it around, and they drink of the, of the wine. And, and once they've drunk of it freely, I don't think Jesus is advocating drunkenness here. I know he's not. But he is saying that once they've enjoyed the good wine, once their taste buds have kind of been taken care of, you know, and it's, it's been good, then he brings out the cheaper stuff. Remember, we're talking about a week's worth of stuff here, a week's worth of celebration in many cases. After they've had the good stuff, then he brings out the cheaper stuff to save some money, but not you. You are, a, you are an unbelievable bridegroom. Uh, you are an unbelievable host at this party. You gave them the cheap stuff first, that he thought was the good stuff probably and then you brought out the best stuff don't you know the bride the bridegroom is going i don't know what you i don't know what you're talking about why i i ran out of wine i i didn't know there was any new wine i didn't know there was anything to be had I, i've run out of it and he, he he's probably flabbergasted himself but he's he's commended by the waiter the head waiter because this is better than it was to begin with I think Jesus is showing us a lot in this first miracle done without a doubt in the privacy of a wedding done in someone's home where the wedding was taking place but yet in this first sign that John begins to unfold for us who he is we, we see a remarkable thing taking place I don't want you to lose note here. Don't, don't lose sight of the fact that the water that was used was in the, the vat, the water pot, that was used for the Jewish custom of purification. Don't miss that. That was, a, it was part of the law. And, and, and no good Jewish person would have ever gone into a, someone's home or especially into a party without first washing carefully their hands. It, they, would have, they would have not just felt like they might get, you know, today we, we're germaphobes and we wash our hands all the time because we're afraid we might be hindered by it. You know, we might get a germ in our mouth. And so we wash our hands and we use the, the desanitizer or the sanitizer and degermer or whatever. And then we, uh, we wipe them off real good. And we might be afraid that towel was dirty, so we'll do it all over again, you know, just to be sure. Every, that's not what they were worried about. They were, they, were, they were concerned about obedience to God. They, they were concerned about the fact that God had said, this is a ritual that you're to go through as a symbol of purifying of sin. But what, what's happening here is we're coming to a time when the symbol is no longer necessary. We're coming to a time when the water pots are about to give way, not to dirty water for external purification, but about to give way to new wine. To new wine. To better wine. Something that's better. Wine in Scripture is always used as a picture of, of success or, or the blessings of God. The passage that 
that Ricky read out of Proverbs 3 said the blessing of God will come to you if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. It goes on down to that passage and says, and your, your crops will produce and you'll have food on your table and your wine vats will be filled with new wine. I mean, it's just a symbol of God's blessing. It's also a symbol of joy. In the Psalms, in, in the Proverbs, it talks about that, that God has given that as a, as a way to make your heart merry. It's, it's, a, it's a sign of joy. Again, drunkenness and abuse, just like with gluttony and, and, and other sins, are prohibited in Scripture. But the picture there is always that there is a joy and there is a blessing where God chooses to use wine as the central factor in Scripture. What Jesus is showing here now is that the old purification has given away to something new, and not only something new, but something far, far, far better. I mean, which would you rather have? A good, hearty drink of purification water or of new wine that the Messiah has just spoken, not even spoken in existence, has just willed into existence by his power. And there's no, there's no difference. There, there's no comparison. There's a, there's a tr complete difference there between the two. And what John is showing us here, first and foremost, in, in choosing this. Now understand, John also said at the end of his book, when he got to the end, when he talked about, you know, this, I'm, I'm writing these things, you might believe that he is the Christ, that he is who he said he was. I'm showing you all this. He also says that if all the miracles... All of the signs of Jesus were, were put into a book or written down. There wouldn't be enough books in the whole world to contain them all. So John's going to choose seven here that he thinks show us specifically the truth of who Jesus is. And he chooses this one, one that we might think so random. But in this he's showing that the old way of the law is giving way to the new way of God's grace. Remember back in, in, the, in that first chapter when we talked about what, what God was doing, John, John said for, uh, you know, that, that through Moses, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That's one of the things this, this, this miracle, this sign is showing. Law and, and, and the law of Moses got you this far. It pointed to this point. It talked about this Messiah. But now that the Messiah is on the scene, now that he's here, that old, the, the old symbolism, the old law that pointed you this way is no longer what you're to live by. Now, that doesn't mean the law is, is negated. That doesn't mean the Ten Commandments have no meaning to us today. Certainly they do. But we no longer look to the law as some way a source for finding a right relationship with God. We now look to Christ. We look to the new wine. We look to the grace and the truth that comes in Christ. So the old in this miracle is giving way to the new. The old law pots of purification are now giving way to a new joy, a new peace, a new life that's founded on his grace and truth, not on, not on legal obedience, not on trying to do the best I can, not on trying to live up to a false standard or a standard that cannot be reached. It's now found in Christ. The wine in the pots that just miraculously were that was there 
was because they represent the newness that Christ is bringing into the world. Something totally new. Something unlike anyone has ever seen. And I'll guarantee you nobody at that party, nobody at that wedding had ever seen water pots for purification become wine. New wine. Good wine. The best wine that had been served at that party. There's nothing I want you to see. Jesus didn't just give a little extra wine. He said, fill the water pots with water. Fill them all the way up. And, and so the servants there filled them to the brim. I think one of the applications of this that we draw out of this is the fact that not only does Jesus provide life, not only does he provide joy, but he provides it in abundance. Now, you may be here this morning, you may be saying, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't sense that. I don't, I don't sense a real joy in my walk with Christ. I'm, I sense a burden. I, I find myself trying harder but not succeeding. I, try, I find myself trying to do what's right, and, and, and I just can't do it, and, and there's a misery there. There's not a joy there. Then I would say to you that you may be trying to still drink out of the water pots, out of the law, and not out of the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free. It doesn't set us free to, to disobey. It doesn't set us free to, to go out and, and seek after sin for our joy and enjoyment. But it sets us free to be what God has called us to be. A freedom we would never have apart from his gospel. A freedom we would never know. A joy we would never know until we're in Christ. And there are many people who are sitting in churches today who are still trying to say, I've got to earn favor with God. I've got to do enough that God will love me enough. And, and what, what Jesus is saying here is, hey, drink of the new wine of the gospel. Drink of my grace. Drink of my truth. I have already accomplished on the cross. My merit is good for you if you are in me. You don't need to. to you're not, you don't try to earn your rightness with God. You can't do it. When that freedom comes, when that, when that liberating truth of God's gospel comes, it gives us joy. There's a joy in walking with Christ. And it's a joy that's in abundance, just like the wine was in abundance here that, that was created in those water pots. I want you to see one other thing that John wants us to see here because this is so very important. In verse 11, the last verse, he says, This is the beginning of his, of his signs Jesus did in, in Cana of Galilee. Now, first of all, I want you to understand that kind of negates a lot of the apocryphal writings that, were, that came into being around the 2nd and the 3rd century that had Jesus doing all sorts of miracles as a child. I don't know if you've read those or not, but some of them, you know, Jesus sitting out with friends by a water uh, by a mud puddle and he'd reach down and he would grab a, a, a handful of mud and he would shape it into something like a bird and then he'd say fly away and the bird would come alive and fly away another one had him and some boys playing maybe by the same mud hole I don't know doing whatever boys do and one of them made him mad and he just boom struck him dead and he was gone I mean all sorts of things that are were written later on by 
some strange writers. But John makes it clear here, this is his first sign. This is his first miracle. This is the first thing he did in the era of miraculous. And, and look at why he did it. He said he did this at Cana Galilee at this wedding and manifested his glory. He manifested his glory. Again, do you remember what he had said back in chapter 1 in verse 14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We saw his glory. And now these people are there at this wedding, and, and, and this one little thing of changing water in purification water pots into wine simply by willing it begins to show his glory it doesn't say here that everybody at the wedding followed him it doesn't say here that everybody said oh let's exalt him and let's make him king let's do anything it doesn't say anything like that it just says it manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him I assume they're just talking about Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and Philip, the, the ones who have been named so far that followed him. Maybe there were others there, but they were already following him. But when they saw this sign, when they saw his glory manifested, when they began to see that he really is the son of God, they believed in him. Our world is a world that wants to see a sign. Uh, they, don't, they don't really want to hear about a sign that took place 2,000 years ago in Cana of Galilee necessarily. They want to see a sign today. They want to see a miracle today. They want to see something that's, that's happening today that's, that's contemporary and current so they might believe in Jesus. Could I suggest to you this morning that the greatest miracle that our culture, our generation, our town, our community could see is men and women like you and me who have seen the glory of Christ in his word and in his truth and have been changed by that glory that our world might be, see the miracle of joy in our lives. That they might see the miracle of, of us who are believers being able to face enormous circumstances that are difficult and say it may not make me happy I may be grieved I may be sad but my God reigns and God Jesus Christ is in control of this situation no matter what it is could it be that the miracle they need to see is just the joy of Christ filling our hearts and filling our lives and filling our churches Could it be that many don't believe because they see you and me as being just like them? They, they have no, no attraction to Christ. They have no attraction to his body, the church, because they say it's, they're just like us. There is no difference. Have you figuratively taken the new wine of Christ into your life? Have you come to him by faith and, and been filled with his joy? 
are you still trying to purify yourselves with the old water pots? Are you still trying to wash yourself clean and say, i got to be clean enough for God? And that never, ever, ever happens. Or have you come to the one who has made all things new, made all things better, and by his death on the cross, by trusting in him and him alone, you have been clothed in his righteousness, purified not by yourself, but purified by him. You see, when Jesus said to Mary back up in the first part of this passage, my hour has not yet come. He's not talking about it's not time for me to start doing miracles. All through John, anytime you hear Jesus refer to his hour, he's talking about his death. The time of his ultimate and complete glorification and magnification in his death and burial and resurrection and ascension into glory. He always, the hour always talks about that. And he's just saying, he's saying, it's not time to fully manifest it, but he starts unpacking it. He starts unfolding it. He starts showing his glory a bit. At that little wedding in little Cana in insignificant Galilee. And John says, through this, his disciples saw his glory, saw his glory manifested, and they believed in him. I suppose, again, the question is have you seen his glory? And have you come to believe in him, not just as a religious figure, not just as a moral teacher, but believe in him for who he is, the very Son of God? Let's pray. As we sing this morning in a moment with your heads bowed and your eyes closed just we're going to sing that great song receive the glory about his glory being manifest and him receiving glory as we reflect it back to him my, my heartbeat as we talked about last Sunday morning in, in Sunday school, and as Todd continued this morning, is that, that we see God do a fresh and a new work. Not, not an emotional thing, although it will touch our emotions. But if it's just emotional, it dies as quickly as it rises. But a deeply spiritual revival and renewal in our hearts and in our church as we begin to move to something new. Something that God has given us but has given us that we might reflect His glory through it. 
call unto me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things that you don't even know are you calling out to him are you crying out to him from the depths of your soul Are you saying, Lord, be glorified through me? Lord, be glorified through our church. Lord, show your glory. Father, Father, make this our heart's cry, our heart's passion our life's passion. And Lord, may they never speak well of us and think we did it. But may the world in which we live speak well of you, Lord. We want you to receive the glory. Thank you, Father. Thank you. As we stand together and